Father, we're so grateful to be here this morning and uh, have this opportunity to open up your word and to hear from you uh, just on an important topic, uh, even about the, the knowledge that you have, the perfect, infinite knowledge that you have of this universe, but also of us individually as well. So, Father, as we dive into your word, we just pray that you prepare our hearts, speak to us today, and help us to walk away with a deeper understanding of how we can live rightly in responding to Uh, just understanding you for who you are. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during my freshman year of college at Cedarville University, they tried a new program during finals week to help stressed out college students relax a little bit and not be so anxious about their tests. So every afternoon, they started this new program where students could come over to the student center for a few hours in the afternoon and have something called PAWS, P-A-U-S-E, for PAWS, P-A-W-S. There was a local organization that they were partnering with that uh, trained up service animals for, uh, for people with disabilities to use. And these service animals, they were all dogs, and part of the training program was they had to have a lot of human contact early on and be socialized. So what they would do, they would bring crates and crates and crates of puppies over to the student center and let them run around and let college kids play with them and pet them for a few hours to help them not be so stressed out, Right? pretty great. Like who doesn't love petting puppies? But take that idea and take it to the next level. When I was reading about a a zoo over in Thailand over the last couple weeks. So I was reading this article about the zoo and for $10, okay, for all you adventure people out there, for $10, you can go for an hour at the zoo and you can pet, feed, play with, take pictures with real life full-grown lions and tigers. So there you go. Yeah, exciting, right? $10, $10, only $10, and maybe your life, but $10, right? But as I was reading through this article, uh, the article is actually about uh, how a lot of people were disillusioned once they were there when they realized how this was possible. Because lions and tigers are a lot of things, but tame, safe, and docile are not usually the descriptors we use. So what these zookeepers were actually doing to allow people to do this, they were taking the lions and tigers and they were cutting off their last knuckle and declawing them. They were defanging them, and then they would sedate them before people came in with them for the hour, right? A lot of the times unbeknownst to the the visitors. What the zookeepers were trying to do, they were trying to take lions and tigers and turn them into cuddly, snuggly house cats, which they aren't. They were trying to transform them into something that was more safe, that was something more tame and more manageable. They were trying to transform what lions and tigers are. And the reason I open up with that illustration this morning is because we live in a time and we live in a society where there's a lot of people that try to do the same thing with God. There's a lot of people that say, you know what, we don't really like the way that God has revealed himself in scripture. There's parts that are uncomfortable. There's parts that don't jive well with our desire for self-determination. There's parts that don't mesh well with our culture's narrative of relative morality. And they say, you know, let's just, let's just cut out the pieces that we don't like and recreate God into something more comfortable and, and more what we desire him to be like. So there's some people out there that say, you know what, this idea that God gives us absolute right and wrongs and kind of wants to tell us how to live our lives, that, that, no, I think God is ultimately, his greatest concern is for me to be happy. And God just wants me to do whatever I want to do. God exists to make my life better. There's some people that say, you know, I really don't like the idea that God would send people to a literal eternal hell. 
And that makes me uncomfortable. So you know what? I think everybody's just going to go to heaven in the end. Or people who die that don't know Jesus, they're not going to go to hell. That's just figurative. Maybe they'll just stop existing. Like that, that's not really something we need to believe in. Or today we're going to look at a topic where there's a lot of people that say the idea that God is omniscient, that he knows everything perfectly past, present, and future, and that God is sovereign, that he's all-powerful. Well, that's uncomfortable for some people as well. And they think, you know, I don't really like that idea because it kind of goes like this. If God's all-powerful and God knows everything, then why did God knowingly allow bad things to happen? Or more personally, if God knows everything, why did God allow this bad thing to happen in my life? Where's God in the midst of my pain? Why is God not doing things the way that I want him to be doing things? And you know, I'm the first to admit that that question, answering those questions, is not an easy endeavor. It's difficult. But as Christ followers, when we ask those questions, we have to ensure that we're looking at God's inspired and errant word, his self-revelation to us to rightly answer those questions. Because the moment we set aside scripture and just say we're going to come up with answers on our own is the moment that we start to give God the Thailand Zoo treatment and say, you know what, I'm just going to create God to be whoever I want him to be. And this is pressing because there are so many people who are attempting to do this. Just this last year, there was a prominent pastor who was preaching on the same topic. And when he got up before the church, he said, why do bad things happen in the world? Well, I think it's this. I think it's because God didn't know that they were going to happen. God was powerless to stop them. He said when God created the world, he veiled and forfeited aspects of his omniscience and his sovereignty. And now God is learning and responding and kind of just uh, responding to things on the fly. He doesn't really know. The, the end is an open book. It's called open theism. Essentially, it's saying that God is just doing a cosmic version of the reality TV show Survivor. God created the island. We're all on the island. And now he has to frighteningly tune in each week to see what happens on the island and who's in trouble and who needs rescuing, Right? That's essentially the God of open theism. But whenever we hear a new and provocative theological teaching, we have to ask ourselves the question, does this mesh with scripture? Does this match what God has revealed about himself to be true in his inspired and errant word? So with the rest of our time today, we're going to look at a variety of passages, but mainly Psalm 139, if you want to open up your Bibles there, to answer this question, does God truly know everything? Is God omniscient? So as we look at Psalm 139, it's one of those really important passages in Scripture. Because Psalm 139, as King David pens this, he gives us a great understanding of theology proper, meaning our doctrine of who God is, his attributes, all of these different things that make God special and unique. And he hits on three things in this psalm, particularly. In the first six verses, he talks about God's omniscience, meaning that God knows everything perfectly past, present, and future. In the next few verses, he talks about God's omnipresence, meaning that God is everywhere simultaneously at once. There's nowhere that we can go to escape God's presence. And then lastly, he talks about God's omnipotence, meaning that God is all-powerful, that there's nothing that our God cannot do. But this morning, we're going to focus in on really the first six verses and talk about God's omniscience. So let me read those verses aloud as you can follow along in your Bibles. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. 
You discern my thoughts from afar, literally meaning you, you read my mind. There's nothing I can hide from you. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with most of my ways, right? No, no, with all of my ways, just testing to make sure you're awake. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in before and behind and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. I cannot comprehend it. I cannot fully understand it. So with this text this morning, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to seek to rightly define God's omniscience, God's knowledge. And then second, we're going to look at how that should rightly impact the way that we live our lives. We're going to go from right belief to right behavior because our behavior always flows out of our belief. But as we're jumping into this text, if we were to boil down everything else that we're going to talk about today to one big idea, one main word of application, it's this. Believe that God knows better than I do. I need to believe that God knows better than I do. Pretty easy, pretty simple, but boy, it's hard to put into practice because so much sin in our lives comes from the thought that I really know better than God. Every time I complain, every time I feel anxious, every time I'm frustrated about things not going my way or I don't like the circumstances in my life, all of those things really emanates from the idea that God, you got it wrong, I would have done it different, I know better than you. So today we're going to see how God's omniscience frustrates those ideas and should lead us to a little bit of feeling, uh, just a little bit of contrition over those, those sinful inclinations we oftentimes have. So as we jump into rightly defining God's omniscience, we're going to see three things. God's knowledge is exhaustive, God's knowledge is personal, and God's knowledge is superior. It's exhaustive, it's personal, it's superior. Let's start with God's knowledge is exhaustive. Exhaustive means that God's knowledge is infinite. It has no, uh, it has, God's knowledge is exhaustive, it's infinite. There's nothing that God does not know. There's nothing that takes God by surprise. There's nothing for God to learn. He knows everything perfectly. And that's exactly what the psalmist goes out of his way to explain in this psalm. And these first six verses, he's saying that God knows him better than he even knows himself. No matter what David says or goes or does, he says God sees it all. God reads his thoughts. God knows the words on his mouth before he even speaks them. In verse 16, later on in the psalm, David says that God even knows uh, his unformed substance before he was born. And God's books were written, every one of them, his days that were formed for him before they were even written. This idea that before David was even born, God already had the book written on him. He knew everything that was going to happen. He knew how many days. There's nothing that takes God by surprise. In verse 17, David says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand of, of the sea. David is saying, I can't, we can't count your thoughts. They're incalculable. They're, their sum is so vast that we can't even comprehend it. There's nothing that you don't know. Imagine it this way. There are currently 5.9 million articles on Wikipedia, right? Every college student probably knows that because you spend a lot of time on Wikipedia for all your research papers. There you go. So, right, Wikipedia, right? 5.9 million articles. Uh, imagine if one person perfectly knew every single article. Imagine how intelligent that person would be. 
they would literally be a know-it-all, right? How frustrating it would be to be around that person, honestly, right? They know 5.9 million. Now, that doesn't even compare to God's knowledge because he doesn't just know all those things perfectly. He's the one that wrote them. He's the one that created them. He's the one that designed them. God knows everything infinitely and perfectly. But not only that, Scripture also teaches that God's exhaustive knowledge doesn't just include things that have happened, are happening, and will happen. God also perfectly knows everything that could have happened or would have happened as well, had he allowed circumstances to be different. What do I mean by that? Think about this way. How many of you out there have ever asked the question, how would my life be different if blank? I would have chosen blank instead of blank. Any, anyone ever asked that question before? No, no, I guess not. Everyone's really happy with everything that happened there and all the decisions they made, right? No, we all ask that. How would my life be different if I had done blank instead of blank? How would my life look different if I would have waited to have kids until I was 30 instead of 19, right? Uh, how would my life look differently if I would have chosen to go to college instead of just getting a job right out of high school? How would my life look different if I would have not passed up that promotion that relocated us across the country? How would my life be different if I hadn't blown out my knee and then, you know, not been able to finish my senior year football and go to the athletic scholar? Whatever it is, we all ask those questions. How would my life be different if blank would have happened instead of blank? blank. But here's the thing. Do we have any way of knowing with any level of certainty what would have happened? No. It's all speculative. That's just one of the many limits to our knowledge. We have no idea. We have zero idea what might have been because we learn through experience. We learn retrospectively. But that's not true with God. God never has to ask, you know what? What would have the universe looked like had I have done this instead of that? God never says, whoa, that caught me by surprise. Control Z, redo, redo. I want another chance to do this over. I made a mistake. Oh, what would have happened if I would have designed this instead of that? God doesn't ask that. God knows all the infinite possibilities. And we see a very clear demonstration of that in Matthew chapter 11. And there's a lot of different, uh, different passages that uh, recount this, but I just want to hit on one. And this is Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 20. And he's denouncing some of the cities where a lot of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And he says this in verse 21. He says, What do you, Corazon? What do you, Bethsaida? For if the mighty works would have been done... And Tyre and Sidon that have been done with you, Tyre and Sidon would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. That didn't happen. He's saying what would have happened if the circumstances would have been different. And then later on he says, and you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? He says, no, you'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works would have been done in Sodom that have been done with you, it, it would have remained until this day. So Jesus isn't spitballing here. He's not shooting from the hip. He's not hypothesizing. Jesus is saying accurately and definitively, if these things would have been done in Tyre, in Sidon, in Sodom, they would have repented and history would have been changed. He's saying, I know what would have happened in every single situation. And the reason that's important is because that should be affirming to us. God when he was putting together the puzzle of the universe, when he was putting together his perfect plan and his will, he wasn't just speculating of what might be best. He knew all the infinite combinations. He knew all the different ways he could put the puzzle together. And he said, this is the best. 
This is the right way. This is the way that's going to bring me the most glory. This is the way that's going to best show my love and my care and my provision for my people. God's knowledge is infinite and we can trust his infinite wisdom. So first the psalmist is blown away at the infinite exhaustive knowledge of God. But then his attention turns and he says he's blown away by the personal and intimate knowledge of God as well. God's exhaustive knowledge is not cold and clinical. It's a real personal relational knowledge that we can have with God as well. And that's what the psalmist is saying in verses 2 through 4. He says, yes, God, objectively, you know everything about the universe. But he says, subjectively, you know everything there is about me. You know me better than I know myself. The psalmist is saying, you know me perfectly, and I'm exposed before you. He says, everything that I do, everything that I think, every word that's on my mouth, before I can say it, you already know it. And that's a little bit of a fearful idea for us, this personal knowledge of God. Because guess what? We're really good at trying to conceal, right? We're good at concealing from other people the things that we're ashamed of or we feel guilty of or the things we don't want other people to know. We're good at concealing, but God's good at revealing. You can't conceal anything from God. I think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they sin. What do they immediately try to do? Conceal their sin. They run from God's presence put on clothes to try to hide their nakedness, and they think that God's not going to know what happened. Well, God already knew. They're exposed. They're laid bare before him. He knows everything. There's nothing that we can conceal from God. But you know, the cool thing in this passage is this. That sounds a little intimidating to us, that God knows everything and we can't conceal anything. But the psalmist isn't intimidated. He's encouraged. He's encouraged. Now think about why that might be. You have David writing this. Now, how many, if we're doing a quick poll, think David was a perfect man? Ah, right? David was really, he, he was a great guy, but he made a lot of mistakes. David made countless mistakes. And moreover, they're recorded in three, to, three books of the Bible and all his Psalms that just kind of put all his mistakes for all of us to read, right? It's kind of, all of his mistakes are very clear. And David is saying, God knew before I was even born all of my mistakes. He knew everything I was going to do. He knew all the ways I was going to fail him. And yet, he still chose me and he still loved me. There's nothing that I can do that's one day God's going to wake up and say, whoa, I regret you. I take it back. No more relationship. He says, you know everything about me, and yet you still chose to have a relationship with me. And, so, and David says, I'm humbled by that. Right? And think how amazing that is. God knows everything there is to know about us. He knows all of our mistakes, and yet he still chose to love us and to send Jesus to die for our sins so that we might have a relationship with him. And one of the things that David says, he says, that makes me feel safer than anywhere else in the entire world. He says, this knowledge, it hems me in behind and before your hand is upon me. That terminology, when you look at the Hebrew, there's really this idea of a fortress. David says, I feel like I'm sitting in the middle of a fortified castle and nothing in the world can get to me because I know that with your infinite, perfect knowledge of both the universe and my life individually, you are working things together for my good and I can trust you says, you're using your hand and your knowledge to direct my paths. God, I love you and I trust you. God's knowledge is exhaustive, 
God's knowledge is personal, but also God's knowledge is superior as well. Look at verse 6. David says, Your knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, meaning that it's infinite, it's vast. I cannot attain it, meaning that I cannot understand it. What David is saying here is this. God knows everything in the universe. God knows him better than he knows himself. So David is saying, my right response is worship, submission, and obedience to God's perfect plan. He says, I'm not going to understand God's knowledge. I'm not always going to understand God's plan, but I can trust it. And that's when we need to confess that God's knowledge is superior to our knowledge. Because there's going to be moments in our lives when God does things that we don't like. God does things that don't make sense to us. With our limited understanding, with our limited knowledge, that is, if we're being honest, it's distorted by sin, it's incomplete, and a lot of the times it's ferociously self-serving. There's going to be times where God's plan deviates from our plan. and We're going to be asking the question, what are you doing here, God? Why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you do it my way? And as the psalmist is saying here in those moments, we need to say, you know what, God, your knowledge is superior to mine. Even though I don't understand it, I can trust it. I think specifically of the example of, of Job, right? We all know Job's story. He's a guy in the Bible who's a very righteous man, a very uh, good man in his walk with the Lord. But in a day, everything gets taken away from Job. His health his wealth, his family, his dignity, everything is taken away. And in those moments, he's still trusting God, but something pivotal happens in chapter 19 of Job. He turns to God and he says, know then that God has put me in the wrong by closing his net around me. He says, God made a mistake. God, you messed up. You did me wrong. You should have done things differently in my life. And for the rest of the book of Job, what does Job say? God, if you would only show up and I could explain why you messed up, you would realize that and you would fix the things in my life. Job is saying, my knowledge is superior to your knowledge, God. You made a mistake. And he pleads and says, I want God to show up so I can just defend myself. Well, Job gets his wish in the end, doesn't he? God shows up. But in the end, God shows up and he doesn't answer all of Job's questions, but instead he asks Job a series of questions. And the series of questions are there to expose this idea that Job, your knowledge isn't as good as mine. Your knowledge is limited. It's broken. You got to trust me. God goes and says, where were you when I set the foundations of the universe? He says, where were you when I did all these things? And he goes on for chapters asking and drilling Job with these questions until Job finally says, I spoke out of turn. I was stupid. I was wrong. Forgive me. Right? God's knowledge is superior to our knowledge. So God is saying to us, you got to trust me. I know there's going to be things in life that are hard and there's going to be moments when you can't figure out the puzzle or see what God's up to. But God's saying, trust me because I'm infinitely smarter than you and I'm working things out for your good. As Romans 8 promises us, for the, for, uh, if God is for us, then who can stand against us? If God is for us, God is saying, you can trust me. Nothing's going to get in the way of my perfect plan. As I was reading through this 
a picture came into my mind. It reminded me last summer when Pastor Jeff was preaching, I believe it was on the end times, and Bram Jarvis was here on stage and he was painting a picture during the sermon. And at the end of the sermon, you saw one picture, but then all the lights went off and he turned on a UV light and another picture presented itself that you couldn't see. It was a hidden picture, a picture he had been painting the whole time, but you couldn't see it until you were under the right lighting. I think that's a really good analogy of the Christian life. Here in this earth, we see one layer of the picture. We see what God is doing. We see aspects of the picture. But one day when we die and go to heaven, the light is going to change, and we're going to see the picture behind the picture. And we're going to understand that's what you were doing, God. I didn't see it in the moment. I didn't see what you were up to. But you were working all things together for my good. I get it. I wish I would have trusted you more. So as we put all the pieces together today and answer the question, is God omniscient? Does God really know everything? The answer is yes. God's knowledge is exhaustive, it's personal, and it's superior. And as we derive our theology and our understanding of who God is from God's inspired and errant word, we have to stand rightly on the doctrine that yes, God does know everything. But how should we respond to that? What's the application? How should that belief impact our behavior? I have three words of application today as we close out our sermon time. The first one is this. If God's knowledge is exhaustive, personal, and superior, then we must trust God when his perfect plan deviates from our preferred plan in life. Some of you might be going through that right now. Maybe there was a loss of a loved one. Maybe there was an unexpected sickness. Maybe there's a prodigal child that you don't understand why they're going that way and they're not coming back. Maybe there was a loss of a job, financial difficulties. I don't know what everybody's going through, but I'm sure there's a variety of things that people are going through right now that they'd say, this isn't my preferred plan. Maybe you feel like the psalmist in Psalm 23 where he says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But he doesn't end there, does he? He says, I'll fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. And he's assured that that valley ends one day by ending up in the house of the Lord where he worships and fellowships with the king forever. And what God is saying through these passages is that there's going to be moments when his perfect plan deviates from our preferred plan. There's going to be painful moments in our lives. But God is saying, trust me. His presence is with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And ultimately, God says, yes, pain is part of my plan for you right now, but pain is not a part of my plan for you for eternity. Because the moment that this life is over, pain ceases to be a reality for all of those who have a relationship with Christ. He says, you have a painless future in heaven with me if you just trust me. And one of the things that's humbling for me to remember when I'm going through a season in life, when I'm asking God, why are you allowing this pain? Why does your pain, why is your plan not fix all the pain immediately? I'm humbly reminded as God says to me, because my perfect plan meant a whole lot more pain for me than for you. Because for God to set this world free from pain, pain that he didn't cause, we're the author of pain through our sin and our brokenness. God's perfect plan meant that Jesus had to come to become sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had to come and die the death that we deserved 
so that we could spend eternity with God. So when I'm whining to God about the pain in my life, God says, you know what? I've suffered a little more pain than you. I know you don't get it now, but if I was willing to endure such pain to save you, don't you think you can trust my plan? We trust God's perfect plan when it deviates from our preferred plan. But here's a second word of application. If God really does know everything and God knows us perfectly, we need to remember that nothing in our lives escapes God's notice. And that reality should do two things. It should comfort those who are feeling afflicted in their spiritual lives, but also afflict those who are comfortable in sin. Let's start there for a moment. Afflict those who are comfortable in sin. You know, Jeremiah 16, 17 says, For my eyes, talking about God here, are on all their ways. Talk about the people of Israel. He says, They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity, their sin, their disobedience, concealed from my eyes. God says, I see the things that they think are hidden. I see the secret sins. I see the hidden sins. All of our lives are laid bare before God. So how differently would our lives look if we actually took that reality seriously? How much sin would we not be committing if we really believed that God was there observing and watching and knew what we were doing? Maybe for some of us that would mean when we're at work, we're really nice to our, our boss and our coworkers to their faces, but the minute they leave, maybe we start thinking really bad thoughts about them or we let some profanity fly or some things that we know we shouldn't be saying or thinking because we really dislike them and we're a little bit two-faced. Maybe for others of us, it could be uh, we knowingly are maybe eating a little too much or drinking a little too much. We're struggling with the sins of gluttony or being buzzed or drunkenness. And we think, you know what? I'm doing it in secret. I do it at night. No one really knows. It's not hurting anybody. It's just a way that I cope with all the things going on in my life. Maybe for some of us, it would be reorienting how we use technology so easy on technology to pop our phones or computers into incognito mode. No one really knows. There's no history being written. I can look at whatever I want. No one's ever going to find out about it, except that doesn't keep God out of your history. That doesn't keep God away from seeing all the things that we're looking at. Maybe for a college or high school student, it's the idea of I got this take-home test. I really need an A. Everybody else is cheating and exchanging answers. I'd be stupid not to. They're all going to get A's. I'll do bad. I should just kind of borrow some answers, look them up online. Or maybe, maybe I have a reading report. I really didn't read the book, but it's easy points. I'm just going to sign off. It's no big deal. The teacher's never going to know I need the A. Why does that really matter? Or maybe for some of us, it's the idea of what we watch or listen to in the privacy of our own homes, the TV shows, the music, the movies, all these things. And we think, you know, it's no big deal. No one at church, the pastor, guy, no one's going to know what, what I'm watching. I'm in my own home. It's safe. We can, we can do whatever we want. But God ultimately is, is there. The reality is there's nothing secret or hidden in our lives, right? And that should afflict us when we're comfortable in sin, but also the idea that God knows everything should also comfort those who are feeling afflicted in their spiritual lives. I've talked to a lot of people that say something like this. I'm trying to serve God so faithfully. I serve at the church nonstop. <laughs> I'm trying to raise my kids in the way that they should go. I'm trying to be a witness for the Lord at work. And it just seems like it's a thankless job. It just seems like no one appreciates me. It just seems like there's no reward. It seems like God doesn't care. Everybody else's life seems to be going better than mine. Is my labor in vain? I feel like I just want to give up. Well, no. Our labor's not in vain. 
Because God absolutely is taking notice of the ways that we serve him. I think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose all the purposes of our hearts. Then each person will receive his commendation from God. He's saying that God's taking record of our lives right now. And his records are perfect. He doesn't miss a thing. And one day he's going to bring to light all of those hidden things. And then at that final day of evaluation and judgment, he's going to give his commendation to those who are faithful. For Christ followers, we will stand before a judgment seat, but it's not a judgment of condemnation. But for us, it's a judgment of evaluation and commendation and reward. And God says, there's coming a day where I will reward you for your faithful service. So even if you feel discouraged, even if you feel overlooked right now, trust that your labor is not in vain. I think a helpful analogy for this is Allstate has this program called the the Allstate Insurance, has this program called the DriveWise program, where you can either have a, a little chip or something in your car or have it on your phone. And what happens with this program, when every time you get in the car and turn it on, it tracks your driving for six months. Every turn, every stoplight, every brake, every gas, it tracks all of your driving. Little creepy, but okay, it tracks all of your driving, right? What's the purpose of this program? It's there in the background taking record so at the six-month period, there's going to be an evaluation for your driving habits. If you're a good driver, what happens? You get a discount and you get a reward. If you're a bad driver, do you go to jail? No, it doesn't go that way, right? They don't call the cops on you. No, you just lose the reward. It's a little bit of how it works with God, how God's omniscience should function in our lives as Christ followers. It should deter us from driving or living in ways that are foolish and going to cause us harm, but should also fuel the right behaviors, knowing that one day God is going to evaluate and reward. And I don't want to miss out on that commendation, right? There's nothing that goes unnoticed by God. But third and last word of application is this. If God really does know everything, then we should desire to know his thoughts. Think of what the psalmist says in verse 17 of our passage this morning. He says, how precious, how valuable are your thoughts, O God, to me. How vast is the sum of them. God's word, God's thoughts should be precious to us. And we don't have to guess or speculate what God's words or God's knowledge is. God's revealed it to us in his inspired and errant word. He gives us everything that we need to know him and to live the life that he desires for us to live. So lastly, we, we should desire to know God's word inside and out because that's how we become acquainted with the knowledge of an all-knowing, omniscient God. Think about this way. Think about that there's a a college student who's in his or her senior year and they really want to get into an Ivy League school, which means they have to nail the SAT, right? They have to nail that entrance exam. And imagine now there's an SAT prep book that is just killer. It gives you strategies, practice tests. It gives you all of the different clues and the techniques and the, the ways that you need to time your. It gives you everything that you need to know to do really, really well on this exam. And then imagine this college student saying, no, I don't think I really need to study. I'm just going to wing it, right? Eh, toss that aside. I don't need it. I'm just going to wing it, and I think I can do it myself. That'd be really foolish, right? We'd say, no, that's dumb. Prepare, read, learn. You need to know what you're doing. Well, how many Christians try to wing it in their spiritual lives? 
God gives us everything that we need to do well, to obey him. And we think, ah, you know, no, I'll just kind of, I'll just kind of wing it. God will just kind of like, you know, move me through life and I'll pick up on the vibes and I'll know exactly where God wants me to go, right? No, God gives us his inspired and errant word for a reason. He's directing us. He wants us to know his thoughts. They're not hidden, but we have to take the time to study them. I want to end our sermon today on one word, and that's worship. How do we rightly respond to an omniscient, all-knowing, sovereign, good God? It's worship. Whenever we encounter the God of the Bible and how he's revealed himself to be, it's a little intimidating. We can't comprehend God, and that's okay. Our response should not be to say, you know what, we're just going to cut out all the things we don't understand about God or we don't like about God, and we're going to recreate a God that we like better. No. As the psalmist says, as we come into contact with who God is, we should be humbled and say, how vast are the some of your thoughts? How infinite are your ways? Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. I am humbled before you in awe of the God that you are. So let's close with a word of worship, or uh, a heart of worship today, knowing that God knows better than I do. And you know what? That's okay. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for this challenging reminder of your omniscience this morning. And though it might seem like a pretty intimidating, really an intimidating truth at first to think that you know everything about us, we're also humbled as we remember that if we have a relationship with Christ, you're using that infinite knowledge for our good. Father, I have no idea why you chose to love us knowing all the ways that we would sin and disobey and uh, just turn away from you. But Father, I'm so grateful that you love us in spite of all those things. And Father, I just pray that you help us to worship you. You help us to know you more deeply. And Father, help us to get serious about the secret sins in our lives and the discouragement. Help us just to live more faithfully for you each and every day, knowing that our labor is not in vain through Christ. And we pray these things this morning in Jesus' wonderful, powerful name. Amen.